0: Conversations with the inspiring minds, using design and creativity towards social change. This is
1: Design for the People with Greg Bunbury. Hello and welcome to Design for the People. I'm your host Greg Bunbury and on this show I'll be speaking to the designers, artists, creative thinkers and activists using their skills to tackle social issues, uplift communities and make a difference in the world. For those of you watching on YouTube, if you're enjoying this content, please be sure to like and subscribe to the channel. It really helps grow our audience and amplifies our guests. Now, joining me on today's show is creative director Juan Roberts. Hailing from greater Los Angeles, Juan got his start after marketing flyers and business cards to salons and barbershops for five years, after which he co-founded an ad agency which he grew into a $10 million business. After he cashed out, he joined another firm at which his work garnered upwards of $50 billion in market share and volume for an A-list of global brands like Chrysler, Coke, American Airlines and more. Since then, his focus has been on developing his boutique firm, serving the black community with a focus on book design and the self-publishing industry across fashion, cultural events and faith oriented communications. His work empowers independent publishers with mainstream quality, strategy, and insight. Juan, welcome to the show. It's
0: good to be with you. Thank you for having me.
1: That's no problem at all. Uh, thank you for joining us. So just some background for our listeners. I first encountered Juan's work via a Facebook group for Black designers, where we had a few interesting initial conversations regarding the work of legendary designer Emery Douglas. And what I found really interesting about his career was that it epitomizes the idea of being of service and what it truly means to serve a niche. So Juan, can you tell us a little about your background and your journey into design thus far?
0: Well, you you kind of touched on it in the intro. Um, you know, I, I uh, was in, back in the day, we called it commercial art. So in, mm. in high school, we, you know, I took commercial art and did all the kind of perfunctory things going through the various creative skill sets. Uh, we didn't have computers back then. Uh, so it was all hand done. It was metal and wood and clay and drawing and different techniques on how to create visual content, or what we call media. And um, went to art school, like I was supposed to, you know, my parents were got to go to college, so forth. I did all that. Yeah. However, around the eighth day, We had finished our first assignment. We were supposed to draw, I think it was a milk carton. Mm. And then we took the drawings and put them on the wall, and the teacher was doing assessments. And something really struck me. I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking about all the stuff I wanted to do. You know, hip-hop was like this burgeoning thing happening somewhere out there in the world. Right. And uh, music was popping. Fashion was popping. There were other things going on in culture. And this is 77. And I, uh, I didn't want to be drawing milk cartons. (laughs) So I got up after, you know, he did his review critique and I said, thank you very much. And I, I never went back and I've never looked back. So, uh, left there, went to go get into fashion. I wanted to be a fashion illustrator. And that was an intersection between fashion and and in the seventies between music and culture, and uh, of course, fabrics and things like that. But around that was a whole lifestyle. Of course, there was drugs and sex and all kinds of things going on in the business. Mm. I wasn't really directly involved with that, but I was adjacent. Sure. Uh, but I learned so much as a kid. I was probably in a lot of places I had no business being. Right. <laughs> doing a lot of things that most 17-year-olds were not involved in but it heightened my ability and awareness of what was going on creatively. Gotcha. Uh, and it strengthened, uh, my ability to hustle big time, mm. you know, crazy hustle. Uh, but it, um, also kind of burned me out a little bit, you know, man, yeah. I, I, I think that's the term we use. I was really just a little more intimidated because the higher you go in that business, the more ex, uh, experimental you have to become, let's say. Just mm-hmm. put it in a nice way, sure I wasn't that guy i'm I'm just not that guy i'm you know a midwest guy, much more sensible about life, mm. and uh I backed off uh got to in, get to know my family a little bit more in the city of Detroit cause I grew up in Milwaukee as a kid right uh but between Milwaukee and Detroit, I spent most of my summers in Detroit, so I went to Detroit, got to know my family, met my wife there raise a family and, uh, all this other career stuff took place at the same time.
1: So how did you find yourself in such an explosive commercial environment where you're going from basically hustling flyers and other marketing materials to growing a $10 million ad agency?
0: Well, I I tell you, uh, Part of what I just shared with you, put a pin in that for what took place in fashion industry Mm. because it was so intense. It was very, very fast. So this move to Detroit was only in 1980. So it was only three years later, maybe a little less than three years later. Uh, But there's a thing called the Mac that came out in 84. And see, all my stuff was done with letter set and burnishers and you know how we used to do put, lay down number or letters and numbers and so forth and cut with razors on That's how we started too, and all yeah. that. Yeah. Okay, so I was doing, all my work was done that way. But when the Mac came out, you had to go to Linotype services and there were very few in the city of Detroit. So it was a convergence of ad agency design firms and people like me having to go get high res output of mm-hmm. this new macintosh type in that um uh, small space office all of us were there and you know I'm, I'm you know i'm at that time more of a hustler kind of kid and i'm asking well, what do you do well i'm an art director well i'm a producer well i'm this and i'm that now none of them look like me mm-hmm. so i you know I, being the kind of guy i was i'm like well what's an art director make all i had to hear was one time what they made and I realized I was on the wrong side of things. Right. So I started to investigate what does it take to become an art director? Am I questioning and where do they hang out? And and in those days, everybody tended to hang out at Fridays. Mm. They did lunch there, they had meetings there and so forth. So I would have lunch there and show up, hey, how you doing? Good to see you again so i'm i'm hanging out with these guys and from from that when uh when uh, apple came out with mac i'm meeting these guys a year later i was doing more of my flyers and so forth and the various materials i was producing for um because i was in barbershops and salons for the most part sure they received uh, materials from a distributor that distributor wanted to know who was doing their flyers. They sent the distributor to me. So the distributor had uh, a system where they did co-op advertising for beauty salons and so forth, distributing hair care products, black haircare products, Carefree Curl and Luster yeah. and all those yeah. sorts of brands. And I became kind of a linchpin for them to do flyers. So they became a new client, just doing flyers but the flyers have been more successful for them than anything else they they were doing. And plus the other brands, some of the brands that I just mentioned, were asking them, who's doing your stuff now? Gotcha. So it turns out they had accrued, I don't know, million, million, three uh, in co-op dollars. And they were just punching out these little flyers and really know what else to do with it. And being the guy I was, what about an agency? I just met all these agency people and I'm finding out knew what they made. And I'm like, I wanna get there. Maybe this is my bridge. So I made the proposal. They said, we like the proposal. When can we do this? And Amazing. I don't know, a couple months later, okay, we wanna make you a creative director. We're gonna start this thing together. We're gonna pay you, this is 1985. So it was about $25,000 a year. It was all over at that point. So uh, within this large distribution company, uh, I found a space to put a drawing table, computer. um, It was just me, it was nobody else, just me. Mm -hmm. And so from there, every pencil, every piece of paper, uh, I didn't know what freelancers were. I didn't know I was a freelancer. So I I found out that, (laughs) and I started hiring other black folks who were doing flyers. They were in the same hustle that I was in and called them art directors. And I went, what's an art director? Well, I'm gonna show you what an art director is. And we grew it from there. You know, a year later we were in an office, we had four or five people, in addition to infrastructure with, you know, finance and so forth. And we were building it. Now their largest client was Kmart. That was the largest client they distributed to, in addition to, other smaller places. And that relationship just kind of blossomed from there. Uh, Kmart's doing its thing. What's happening independently is going on. We're growing at the same time. And we were doing print and radio, just two. Mm. So we're doing full packages for Kmart and they were doing what they call inserts and then point of sale materials. And all this is new to me. Um, I mean, I, I don't know any of this. In fact the first ad that I did for uh that agency I probably would have fired me at that <laughs> point cuz I did, I didn't know what RGB and CMYK was. I went to a photographer who who did senior pictures at my church to shoot the ad. Right. He told turned over the film to me. I gave that to the post house. Sure. Didn't know what a post house was, but I know I manually did the ad, turned over all the materials, and I didn't know what a match print was. I didn't know how to proof. I, I didn't I never saw a proof. I didn't know what that concept was, <laughs> that process. The next time I saw what I turned over to post was in the magazine, it was in it was Essence and Ebony magazine. Wow. It was Horrible! Oh my God! I mean, it was it was bad. It was it wow. was bad. If you ever seen a CMYK on an RGB screen, you know how things go blue uh-huh. and black. Yeah, and, oh, oh yeah. That was in a national magazine.
1: Man.
0: And I would have fired me. I, I definitely would have fired me. Uh, but they they were. I explained it. What what took place? They're like, all oh, right, we can't do this again. So I went to the post guy. I went to go meet it personally the owner, and I said, I need to learn this. Can you walk me through it? He became my college, as it were, on how to take uh, what was in here to produce it in a a digital file format that he could use, and then how to proof that before it actually went out and was inserted to the magazines. Of course. And then from there, everything took off because the work improves exponentially. I was able to teach staff, which I only had, I don't know, two or three people, but able to teach them, and um, I duplicated myself, replicated myself. Right. right. So right. everybody's working and doing things. And yeah. I started to pick up doing radio, So now I started writing um, and then going in and producing radio spots, and we probably, I probably spent 20 percent of my time in the studio doing radio, because we were doing all the radio for Kmart and a number of other um, retailers that were selling black haircare products. Then one day, uh, the voiceover talent didn't show up. I'm booked for five hours. It's going to be paid for one way or another. Uh, I said, give me the script. Show me what to do with this microphone. I went in the booth. And fast forward, I ended up doing probably $50,000, 50,000 radio spots in the course of seven years. Wow. So I ended up spending about half my time in the studio while the staff was doing print. I was doing radio and that's how we grew the age.
1: That's incredible. And I guess for me, the key takeaways from your early experiences kind of underpin a lot of your career or as I come to understand it. So first you have a situation where you network and you build relationships. So you're using this process to meet people and to kind of understand the lay of the land. So you're yes. figuring out where the opportunities are. And then you've identified a niche and you've kind of gone, okay, well, this is a market that I can serve and I can be of value to. And yes. if we were looking at it as uh, typical designers or creatives, what we're taught when we go to university or when we come out of college is we're, we're looking to work with Coke. We're looking to work with yes. uh, big brands and huge agencies. And sometimes we don't think of serving the community around us and all of these niche, because these are all opportunities and these are all viable markets. And a lot of people will talk about the smallest viable market. What's the smallest viable market you can serve and still survive. And often in those spaces, you find businesses thrive because they're overlooked by other people on their way to big agencies. So you've identified a niche and then you've utilized the resources around you To In terms of hiring people from your community, but also tapping them up in order to make yourself better and for you to learn those lessons along the way. And it kind of feels like, you know, that start has had some fundamental, has had a fundamental impact on your work.
0: It has been the the core because uh, at a certain point, I, 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 you know, again, still interacting with other agency folks. And even though I was doing, you know, we were doing okay. Uh, they were doing television. I wanted to do television. I'm like, ah, I'm in a recording <laughs> studio. So I'm in a recording studio, and the guy in the next booth is doing recording, but he's doing it for his television spot. He's doing the next thing. I'm like, what is that? What's that wrong with that? You know, similar kind of thing. But what what I think what, as you kind of pointed out, what's critical is that. I've always been a guy who's seen the world half full, the glass half full in mm-hmm. that analogy. i uh, never been the, the half empty guy. So no matter where I was, it was always more to fill. Sure. And in my mind, uh, it wasn't just for me. So I'm looking at what's going on with my people because uh, that wasn't something I was ever exposed to, not in my family, most of the people I know nobody ever talked about advertising nobody talked about making a living being creative or anything like that it was always lawyer doctor you know other things like yeah. that educators and so forth and there was this whole group of people in our culture and we all know this some of the most creative people on the planet mm. look like us yes sir and you you layer on a little bit of intellect a little bit of skill set and some access with somebody that's smart and hungry, you can change the world. And I started to see that everywhere. So there was potential all around me, everywhere I went. And then that's what really kind of kind of got my appetite going. And I said, "Well, I, I never thought I couldn't do television. Mm. It just it never occurred to me that I couldn't do TV, do, couldn't do TV commercials. But I couldn't do it. At the agency I was with, and something I didn't mention was that my partners at the first firm didn't look like me." Mm. At all. Uh, They were from a completely different culture.
1: Yeah.
0: uh, And it was very specific, I'll say. Sure. And we were always ancillary to what their vision was, never really intrinsic to what their vision is. Gotcha. And after eight years of that, I realized this isn't going to happen this way. So I cashed out, uh, took that. Took a a beat, took a break, looked around, assessed things. And then some of the people I had met, I got a call. We heard you're available. The owner would like to talk to you. I went to go see him. He was on the phone. He, He paused on the phone. He said, I heard you're available. I said, yeah, but available for what? He said, when can you start? Whatever you're making, I'll double it. When can you start? Wow. I said, give me a couple of months. I got to clean some stuff up, get done. He's like, can you do a couple of weeks? So yeah, we could do a couple of weeks. He said, you need to meet my creative director. Uh, They'll set it up. Thanks for coming in. That was my interview. Boom. Now mind you, in Detroit, black ad world was very small. Mm. So anybody that was doing stellar work, there were only a few of us. Literally, there were only two black creative directors in the city. And I was one of them. And so that was the extent. I came out the door. I was in there maybe two minutes. I came out. My associate, she said, you're out. You're done. What happened? I said, well, he wants me to start in two weeks. She just kind of, he did? Because he's (laughs) supposedly a tough guy. You know, he's he's just real, you know, former football player, really tough. I said, that's what he just said. And that was it. That Don't was the dear. start.
1: Deal. And
0: uh, my life changed from there. I gr- literally grew up as an ad professional at that firm. Uh, yeah. Most of the things I had done to that, up until that point were the bits and pieces of the foundational elements on mm. how to do and think advertising, but yeah. never really with the resources, or the exposure to really go global or expand, but in that simple two-minute meeting, changed everything.
1: That's incredible.
0: Everything I th- flipped. I mean, it was like going with a warp speed, like being yeah. on Star Trek, and you hit the thing. and <laughs> You know, yeah, that's, that's what happened. No, now. it was very intimidating. Don't get me wrong. It was very intimidating because I had to learn a lot of things I was never exposed to, never taught, but. Yeah it became, uh, my school, you know, again, more of my yeah. college at college. Yeah. I, I walked away from after eight days that that was more of it.
1: That's incredible. Um, one of the things that stands out for me about that story is, uh, typically when, um, designers are thinking or talking about finding work or landing clients, it's always this active pursuit of clients. Whereas what you did was you empowered yourself by building something that allowed people to come to you. And I think it's a really important distinction because so often when I speak to younger designers, the focus is on portfolio. The focus is on what should I say? What should I do? How should I be? Should I stand here? Should I stand there? Should I stand back? Should I wear this? Should I not wear this? When my advice is always build something. So they come to you, like whatever you can do around you like whether it's serving a smaller market or whether it's a self-initiated project or whether it's just developing whatever you have access to so you know if your uncle has a real estate company like doing work for that in order to build that up because that allows people to come to you rather than this endless cycle of just taking your portfolio around because it becomes such an easy thing to dismiss somebody on that basis especially if you're challenged on industries that have incredibly low representation to begin with. So I think that story to me is a great example of you building something and allowing people to come to you.
0: You know, you know what I found about the, uh, that portfolio model is one that was designed, and this is just my personal opinion. It was one that was designed by an old boys network. Oh yeah. Uh, Because I had, you know, according to others, a brilliant portfolio. But looking like I do, going into most of the offices that I wanted to see my portfolio.
1: Right.
0: I sat literally for hours in outer offices waiting for portfolio reviews that took 20 seconds. We'll call you. And I never heard from them. And mm-hmm. I realized the instant I walked in, they have no intention of ever calling me. Yeah. Uh, there was never a question about the book. It was perfunctory for them. And I realized maybe after a dozen of those, and I literally, I mean, I i, I went all over. went to New York, went to Chicago, different places, and they were not interested in one, any kind of black work, two, they were not interested in that coming from someone who looked like me. They, would, they were using art directors who didn't look like us to do what they called their cultural work or, or um, black work. Right. And I realized, okay, this, this is not the system I need to function from, And you know, you do your own internal contemplations, And historically, I mean, our, our ancestors were, mer- were merchants. That's what we do. Mm. Uh, we call it hustling today, but we're, we're mercantile a mercantile culture. We buy and sell and extend and grow. And that's what we do to increase uh, culturally. And you take those sensibilities and apply them to a broader world. And uh, it's kind of like Reginald Lewis, you, you, you can't stop us. You know, we, yeah. we always see opportunities yeah. everywhere we go. Yeah. And and that that whole portfolio thing. And I, I talk to young people now. I'm like, what What are you really using your portfolio for? I don't even think they look at bags anymore. You know, everybody's mm-hmm. on a website. They want a link. They meet you long before they ever meet you, oh, because yeah. they're doing their research. They're able to get what they need. If you've done the necessary things you need to online for your own personal branding or professional branding, um, they don't really need to meet you. Yeah. I mean, really, That's it. you know. And That's if you're it. doing. Stellar work or work that's highly competitive, uh, typically an interview isn't the, the thing. It's more uh, at a dinner or a lunch or some association. I mean, I talk to young people all the time I'm saying, and they ask me, well, I'm having trouble trying to go to the next level. I'm like, well, what associations do you belong to? And I mm-hmm. know there are leaders, don't get me wrong. I know AIGA and so forth and so yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, but what organizations are you investing in to be where they are?
1: Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. none. Well, then how do you expect them to get to know you? Because they have to know you before they hire you. Yeah. And they're not going to know you from twenty minutes in a room, never mm-hmm. having met you.
1: Yeah. That's Besides
0: right. that, what kind of follow up do you do for the interviews that you do? Follow mm-hmm. up. Uh, Yeah. Follow up. Thank you. Card. You know. Yeah. Get permission to send them things on an ongoing basis. I said I got. There's a story. John H. Johnson told. Me we were at lunch once. John H. Johnson was a uh, founder of Ebony magazine, Ebony Jet. Oh
1: yeah. yeah.
0: And so we're at lunch once, and uh, I forget what city, but he told the story about how they were trying to get their cosmetics line into London, and it was complete blockade. Never going to happen. They were told point blank, never huh. going to happen. So he. Uh, talked to his wife, Eunice. And uh, for one year, every Monday, he sent someone to uh, I forget the name of the retailer, but he sent them to this retailer. Mm -hmm. And for one year, the retailer never met the guy that he sent. He had a scheduled appointment, Mm -hmm. show up on Monday, and he sat there. That's where he had his lunch. He sat there in the outer office and waited every Monday for one year. Now, around the 13th month, as the story goes, uh, the guy finally came out on his way someplace else to tell him to his face, this is never going to happen. And in that time period, he always, this is the part I didn't say, he always took, uh, I don't know what you call it. You know, you've seen in movies, rich people show up to a hotel and they have all this luggage.
1: Oh, yeah. the like the carousel
0: things. Yes. He showed up every Monday for one year with all of their products. So it wasn't just him sitting there. Mm -hmm. He had a service person, brought the stuff up. So just in that 20 seconds, he met that guy going to the elevator. He says, I understand. I really appreciate you speaking to me right now. I brought something for you just in case you'd like the opportunity to uh, just look at our stuff, even if you don't want to meet me. A week later, ring, ring, come back. We'd like to talk to you. We think you have a spot for you in our store. And, and, you know, we're all sitting, you know, we were all young executives sitting around John H. Johnson talking. And and, uh, he said, that's how we got into London. He said, don't ever accept no.
1: Mm. And, you know, you
0: hear these things when you go to talks and so forth. uh, And that's where never give up. Because a lot of times I'm talking to things, and I always tell people, never give up. No yeah. matter how dark it gets, how how uh, unfair, how useless, how how all of that, just don't give up. Keep it moving. Keep and it I moving. think
1: I think there's also a lesson in there in that if you're facing barriers, so if as Black and POC creatives and designers we're facing barriers in these industries that we're trying to get through, I think the lesson there is that we have to innovate. That We can't go through the same channels as everybody else because there are instances like I've spoken to HR directors who will flick through resumes uh, and filter out any surname that sounds African or Caribbean. And so these are the barriers that we're facing, right? So in that case, we have to innovate. So, you know, when we're talking about that hustle and we're talking about uh, making something out of nothing—that we have to find different pathways in order to get our work out there, or to get our foot in yes. the door, or to get in front of someone. So, yeah, I think that's a really, really vital lesson there.
0: It's not just the, um, the getting in. I mean, to, to me, getting in should be the easy part. That's that's kind of learning your skill set, how to talk to people, how to read a room, how to pick up the vibe. Uh, what the challenges are to navigating to get where you want to go, just like anything else. You find a roadmap, you map it out and you go do it, you execute. But even when you're inside there, there are these additional barriers. Like, So I I told you I went from print and radio, I mean, print and radio to television, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm on set here in Los Angeles at that time. I'm from Detroit here in Los Angeles. And we would spend two months out here to get a spot done after nine months of development with the client, going back and forth with Chrysler or P&G or whoever we were working with, and spent a lot of time invested in getting this done. And then to get here in Los Angeles, I'm spending $450,000 on a 30-second spot to have a production company tell me, I go on set, uh, I'm thinking, uh, naively, that they're gonna be sensitive to, this is a black agency, we're doing work for the African-American community, so mm-hmm. we should go find some talent that represents them on set. Nobody, not wow. even craft services. Oh my! And and uh, it's first day, my first day, first set for Chrysler, and it was the oddest feeling. But again, I never thought it couldn't happen. You know, today we talk about thirty percent and mm-hmm. different things we went on a Hollywood set and so forth. I had no idea it was some kind of movement or anything like that back in 94, had no idea. All I know was y'all better have some black folks on set tomorrow. And so I call back to Detroit. I said, whoever you need to talk to right now, stop what you're doing and fine, put the list together. To, and I sent them the call sheet. I said, whoever's on this call sheet that has a union organization, something, find me somebody and put a list together that I can give this production company. And 24 hours later, or less than twenty-four hours later, we were on set first thing, you know, early morning, you know, get there seven 30 craft services. It was a black woman. I'm like, okay. Even the security guard was black. Like, okay. So I'm like, okay, good, good move, but we'll see what happens. You know, so I'm with the producers. We're doing our pre-meeting in the morning and uh people are showing up to set i go walk in the because uh, there was no makeup artist it was nobody the, the day before so i walk in this, in the booth in the uh, trailer and uh there's a black woman in there and so i go over here and then there's a did don't know what a pa was really and uh this black folks running around with cables and lights and moving stuff and so forth so i'm good with that so i talked to my producer i said what do they do they said, well, they do this, this, and this. I'm like, okay, well, who's operating that camera and that light, and who's telling them what to do? She said, hold on. Called over who the new crew was. Okay. And the second AD All was right. black. Uh, best boy was black. Uh. I, hate that, I hate that name, however. Uh, <laughs> was black. And uh, the, the DP... Had an assistant,
1: right?
0: Now I, I, I've never really known a DP to have an assistant, but part of their crew they brought on was a, a black guy, and so I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm 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 feeling good, feeling better. But from that, and that was a kind of a test thing. I didn't really know what I was doing. I just know I needed to do something. Yeah. But from that, for the next ten years, uh, it was mandatory for every production company that we work with. And uh, we had our pre, pre-approved pre tier sheet on who we liked, first mm-hmm. tier, second tier, third tier, depending upon the budget for the project. And we ended up getting Academy Award-winning audio people, uh, DPs, directors, some of everybody uh, nice. that came through. And it's like, no, no, we, we need to have this. And as a matter of fact, craft services, this is who we're going to use. Cause we were doing a thing but we were introducing the neon and we were shooting in the Valley of Fire outside of Vegas. Now, if you ever been to Valley of Fire? There's nothing there. It's just rocks. Wow. It's a desert and rocks and it's an hour from the city. And there's no soul food down the street they can go order from. <laughs> so And so what, they, what we do on set is they, they have these food trucks, these huge food trucks, and they set up everything. Tables, tents, everything in the sun and all that. Well... They, they found a, a brother and a Mexican, they had this amazing food joint. They had macaroni and cheese, okay. they had ribs, they <laughs> had, they had, you know, some greens and all like that. And the, the, now mind you, there's 60 people on set as a crew, 20, 30% of them were black. Mm. So we had the traditional steak and potatoes and, and those sorts of things, which was cool. And that, yeah. that, you know, satisfied the larger crew. Uh, But then our crew, you know, our team felt satisfied, but everybody felt gratified and it kept because critical on a set, particularly a commercial set is important to have everybody feel connected and not just being told what to do. So in that regard, if the AD is the one who's actually giving crew orders is black, Mm. it changes the dynamic. Now, those that don't look like us may have been a little uncomfortable, but they if they're intelligent, they wouldn't have expressed it.
1: Right. They just gotcha. did their job.
0: Gotcha. Uh, gotcha. But, you know, n- not saying anything against Hollywood system or anything like that, but some of the best directors that I learned from didn't look like us. They took mm-hmm. time. They were patient. Uh, they explained things to me. Uh, some of them, you know, we ended up doing posts in Europe a few times. Mm-hmm. We were running to Spain, going to Germany, different places. And they were always the ones who really exposed me. I also knew everything wasn't gonna come from us. Right. So we wanna be able to collaborate and uh, share knowledge. So I was exposed to those things as well.
1: There's a great takeaway there, I think, in terms of getting internal buy-in and using whatever position or influence you have to create environments when you have buy-in and that creates more collaborative uh, environments and work environments. And it's something that the tech industry and, uh, a lot of startups have embraced in terms of trying to keep everybody, uh, it's, it's more than happy, but validated, you know, like you Good want work. people to, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, that, that's a, that's a, a great story. Thank you for sharing that. It's incredible. The amount your work is generating in market share and volume at this point, And the brand list, which is like a dream list for anybody who works in advertising.
0: So. Did okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's your thinking at this point? Where do you go from here? What's your thinking before you start thinking about making a pivot?
0: Well, the, uh, I wish I could tell you that the pivot was strategic. For whatever reason, uh, at the 10-year mark with the firm I was with, uh, done all these great things, won all these awards. We were on the BT Top 100 Agency list and all that stuff. Uh, for a considerable period of time, did some good stuff, but at a particular point, it was here, so we did a spot for Verizon
1: mm-hmm.
0: with uh uh there's a young lady um uh, tweet she did a song called "Call me oh yeah 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 and we we did a collaborative spot where they were already doing a music video on her here in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and we had this new brand coming out for Verizon Wireless. So we collabed with, I think it was Epic Records, Sylvia Rome, and we negotiated a deal where we would go to the shoot. They would shoot certain scenes of the video specifically for us. You know, we were doing the, you know, can you hear me now? And then this yes. and all that back then. And so we did that, did phenomenally in the marketplace. Crazy, crazy numbers, spiked like crazy. So that was my entree to talk to my boss. Let's do some more branded entertainment. You know, we got to be based in LA, so forth and so on. I always hated the cold. It was an opportunity. Uh, So I'm out here. You know, they moved me out here to Los Angeles. We're putting things together. And we uh, were developing some stuff. Took about five months to start to get in the doors. So people would take my call and return calls and things like that because it takes time
1: yeah
0: and just as we're doing that i got a call from hr unceremoniously we're calling to let you go i paused said so are you going to honor the the tenants of the contract a voice in the back of the room on that end said we're going to honor every everything i'm like okay cool I got a really great severance. You know, the contract was tight. Mm. So I'm good. We're, we're going to pivot and do something else. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, my choice. It wasn't my timing or anything like that. But six months later, literally to the day, I, I tried this. I tried that. Every, every phone call that I made from all the people I had worked with, everybody, only one person returned my call. One, this guy called me, said, look, I got this project. I don't know if you really want to do it. It's uh, they, you know, they need a commercial. You do commercials. I don't really do commercials. Uh, maybe you want to call them back. I'll send you the number. He sent me the number. And my severance was just about up. I mean, cause I was, I was hustling. I'm trying to get stuff going uh, and not a lot happening. Building the portfolio. <laughs> doing that <laughs> and uh, thinking that that gave me uh, accessibility, which, which it didn't. So it turns out all the stuff I learned when hustling on the street and building that little agency at the beginning mm-hmm. and then growing at, at, uh, at the other firm, all that stuff turns out worked with this, this uh, it turns out to be, this, I don't know if you're familiar with Christian world, But there was an event called Megafest back in 05. Uh, My friend got a call from them. They needed somebody to do some advertising. They thought they needed one spot. I took a call, uh, you know, 20-minute discovery call. Mm. And they said, well, this is what we need, so forth and so on. And they talked to me as though I was a vendor. Mm. And I talked to them as an opportunity. And so they said, well, we're having our last big uh, scheduled meeting with all of our vendors tomorrow. You're welcome to come to it. Right. Uh, like I said, I'm at the end of my severance, you know, a few thousand dollars left. It's a $415 ticket round trip to go down to Dallas. And I'm like, oh, do I take this, go down there? Cause nothing could happen. I mean, it could be yeah. just like other yeah, trips yeah, I course. took.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. And uh, I bought the ticket, went down, they picked me up, went to the meeting. It was, uh, Meeting, not unlike other meetings I've had, you know, a major event, people are getting together, last looks before everything goes live. And uh, I told him, I said, you're you're cutting yourself short. If you think you just need a spot, this is what you really need after that meeting. Mm -hmm. And I told him in a few seconds, this is what you need. Boom, 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 boom. He said, don't move. He went and got uh, TD Jakes. I never met the man. Heard, you know, heard about him, seen him on television. Brought him over. He had already talked to um, uh, T.D. Jakes. And Bishop came over and he said, "I heard you have another vision for what we need to be doing." He said, "We have all these people here, and nobody's ever told me what you just told me." So forth and yeah, so on. Yeah. You know, he's a kind of imposing guy. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, but not anybody I haven't met before, worked with before. You know, a tough business, so I met some tough people. You're working in the music industry and so forth and so on it's like okay all right well are you done i heard what you just said but this is what's going to happen and i told him what i believe what was going to happen well how do you know what's going to i said and I, well these are a couple things i've done and he kind of backed up we should talk more so we went to go have a bite mm-hmm. uh, as as a lord would have it at the end of that i told him what he needed and we ended up doing a 10-spot campaign with all the other accoutrement that go with television uh, in the next couple of months before launch. Amazing. And it helped to make that the largest urban Christian festival ever. Incredible. And uh, that kind of launched the pivot. Right. You know, so right. took this severance down to almost zero, mm-hmm. and then that happened. That was a blessing, and then everything started to go the other direction. Because after MegaFest, everybody wants to know who did that, just like before. Gotcha. Who did that? Yeah. Uh, Just on a different level. Yeah. Uh, And so all of these other, and this is uh, this is the mid nineties. or no, mid two thousand five. So, and a lot of what was happening in urban Christian ministry was. Trying to uh, transition from kind of basic elemental neighborhood stuff to more global mm-hmm. right. broad stream stuff sure I ended up being that guy, so I'm taking on clients as a consultant to help them all over the country uh, to do what they wanted to do you know and, and rebuild their brand They didn't really understand what brand was so it was a lot of exposure, a lot of education and it was a joy to do and it exposed me to what we were talking about a more sophisticated niche mindset, mm. you know, and now kids talk about the riches and niches and all those sorts of things. And, and <laughs> we weren't thinking that back then, it's not, honestly, it's not how we termed it. Uh, we were, we were uh, black men and women who were concerned about our culture, mm-hmm. had more resources than perhaps our ancestors or our, our previous leaders did. And we wanted to make good decisions about how to move us forward. Yes, And that started a whole new direction, you know, on, on how I was moving forward, but it gave me a different sensibility about, uh, having had all this other big time experience, uh, dealing with people who were founders and Mm -hmm. creators is very different than dealing with corporations because the projects we did then were line items for them, part Mm -hmm. of a larger strategic agenda. When you're dealing with founders and creators, you're dealing with their after-tax dollars, mm-hmm. and them needing to be able to make something happen with it now, yes, not two years from now, yes, two months from now, uh, and that's a different timetable, different sensibility. And because I had all this other experience, I was able to bring that to bear uh, in a very short period of time and crystallize things for them. I learned how to articulate uh, short term. Mm-hmm. So they could see where they could be in the next six months and how we were yeah. going to get there. And that's, that's what we started to do. And that was the beginning of the pivot. And that's what involved me with uh, Tavis Smiley. That's how we got connected with Smiley books. Gotcha. Right. Cause right. I'm out there doing what I was just expecting. You know, I'm out there doing what I'm doing and uh, emerging, you know, in that Christian world and uh, Tavis is adjacent and same people are going to the same meetings, same golf clubs, so forth and so on. Well, who did your stuff? Mm. I met this guy that used to do this, right. and maybe he can help you. And Tavis had just done an imprint with Hay House uh, called Smiley Books. He didn't know what to, you know. He didn't really know what to do. He's a television guy, so he's doing this thing, the television. And I got a call. Somebody I knew knew somebody there. Again, I got a call. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah.
0: And uh, went to this meeting with a, a nice woman. And went in there, had the meeting. Wasn't a terribly exciting meeting, mm. but the, the follow up calls from there changed my whole trajectory. Because, you know, as we were talking about earlier, my mindset had, had always been what's the next big thing? Mm. Not just the next thing, but what's the next big thing? Well, I'd kind of gone to the top of the big things. And I wasn't necessarily feeling sorry for myself, but it's like, how can I get back to that? But I found I was chasing the game
1: Yeah. and the
0: game was playing me. So what's, what's, what's happening here? So mm-hmm. publishing, I knew nothing about nothing, literally nothing. Uh, yeah. But they uh, called me, asked me to do their logo, you know, did a logo, knocked that out. Uh, but in that, and, and I try and talk to young people about this a lot of times. Uh, Because I know we live in the age of apps, and uh, it's kind of what I I say everybody hides behind. Uh, But going to the next level in business is not in an app. It's -hmm. still looking somebody in the eye, using your voice, using your skills, articulating, reading the room, being able to pitch, being able to explain what it is and discover what it is that's there uh, to do that's new. And so in that uh, short exchange, we did the logo and it was just a logo. Seriously. It was just a logo, yeah. uh, but they said, well, our first project with them is a, a historical book, 100 years of black history. And I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. And so from there, when that book came out, it, it, it really kind of told me, so, there are probably more people like this that need this the way that I would do it and maybe, not just arrogantly me, but exposed to somebody like me to be able to talk to them. Because every project that I do, what I know is brought to bear. I mean, I'm able to share unique empirical information about, no, I know you want to do that. So it's don't do that, do this. I know that's what you're thinking, but this is why you can probably modify that thinking perhaps and do it this way and get these kind of results. and I can speak with a sense of authority because I've been there. Uh, most of the independent authors, independent publishers that I work with, they are still dreaming mm. about what their company and their story and their brand can become. Uh, they've never sat in a brand meeting at PG and g uh, and taught color psychology in the urban community. They've never been exposed to that. Yeah. But... I have, and the results of that, I can share with someone who has a simple book. It's a thousand dollars. They're investing after-tax dollars, and they got to make it happen. That's it. Uh, I understand that the blood, sweat, and tears that they've mm-hmm. gotten into the writing and the editing and all the processing and so forth, just to get to that point. Yeah. And then to take that and say, well, your cover does not have to be pretty. It does not have to be beautiful. It has to be effective. You know, and it be able to take, you know, simple things from advertising and marketing and said, look, you got to do three things for your cover. It's packaging, just like soup and, and cereal or anything else you get in the supermarket, it's packaging. Mm. You got to get people, you got to grab attention. You got to build desire. You got to drive action. That's what you got to do. That's your business. Now uh, wow. you've already done your story. This is what you need yep. to transition to let's do this. And I make myself available to every client for as long as we're working on the project. And, uh, hopefully they're better for, um, you know, I get letters and notes and things like that. Uh, they're always better for it after the project because they're able yeah. to take that. And if they ever come, if they never come back to me again, cause I'm not cheap. I'm kind of expensive. Um, <laughs> they, they, they want to take that information and try and do it themselves. So even now I'm putting together a whole DIY uh, campaign to be able to share with independents that don't necessarily have the resources. To use somebody mm-hmm. like me, they may use a, you know, smaller startup designer, what have you. And, uh, but they can do it with a sense of knowledge and confidence. Uh, these That's are the right. steps we need to do.
1: There's just a couple of things that really stand out for me um, in that story. And the first thing I wanna talk about is too many creatives are have this misgiving about this being a creatively driven business. This essentially is about yeah. risk mitigation, you know what yeah. I'm saying? And what you've done or what you've, um, what you've, uh, achieved in your work is you've mitigated that risk for your clients. Yes. You've put yourself in a position where you can say, look, I'm taking your hard earned money that you need to see a return on fast and I'm the least risky option for that return. And that's, it. Yes. That's, that, yeah, that's market standard, um, high quality work that's going to get you what you what you your objectives are. Because you know, when people buy creative, they're not buying it because they want to see creative things, or not buying it just for artistic value. In terms of the design and creative industry and the ad industry, they're trying to solve a problem. And they're trying to look what's the most efficient way for me to solve this problem. And what happens in the yes. black community is sometimes we don't allow ourselves to be in that space. We look at each other like as though we're risky propositions. So a lot of times in the work we do as black creatives, if we can position ourselves to be knowledgeable and to be professional and to know our worth and to know how much things cost, the amount of time that I speak to businesses that just have no idea what design costs, what websites cost. And we have to get better. We, we need to have a deeper understanding of the industries that we work in. We need to learn about them on a level that we can kind of go, okay, look, this is a problem you're trying to solve. Here's a value that I can deliver. Because when yeah. you uh, spoke about your story earlier, one of the things that really jumped out at me was, uh, you weren't pitching, you were offering value, you gave value. Yeah. So it wasn't a case of, hey, you know, I, could, I can upsell you on this or I can upsell you on that. You're like, look, this is where you're at. This is how you can be better. This is what you need to empower yourself. And that empowers your prospective client, whether they hire you or not. And suddenly they look at you not as somebody who's trying to sell them something. They go, oh my God, this guy's this guy's helping me. This guy's helping me build my vision. And that becomes in itself so powerful in terms of the work we do now that you're fairly established in this space what does it mean to you to be able to empower and champion independent black publishers and businesses through your work
0: hopefully as the the dots become connected because you know a lot of what we do is connecting dots Mm -hmm. Uh, there there's a few uh standout uh self-publishers or independent publishers that are starting to make headway in a larger way, the major, uh, mainstream publishing firms, I guess it's big five now, uh, they're doing imprints right. and those imprints. Um, I think at the beginning we're using, um, non-black talent to do the covers because that's what they believed was their, uh, you know, the market, they, they didn't know we existed. So I think as we, as independents, start to work more intelligently, more Mm -hmm. collaboratively. Collaborative is huge because other cultures, that's how they grow is collaborate. I think as we start to think more that way, we'll be able to share information and then tap into what what the industry offers. See, because independent, independent publishing is a growing market you know a lot of what's going on in the world has been going on the last 10 years or so is either flat on the downward curve
1: right?
0: Or not a lot of them on the upward curve except for tech so it, it i think it's really going to take the collaboration of being able to share information yes uh, be willing to work together and learn from each other Well, everything doesn't have to be tech because yep. you know tech will get into uh, mvp it's got to be a minimally viable product Let's do that and let's go get money to fund it and so forth and so on. That's one avenue. But then there's, I have this much money. I have this idea. I know you do this. Can you do this for me? And then can you help me to get it out there? And that's where the tech, they start to interact, they cross over right there. Um, Being able to get them to listen to each other, I'm finding is the, the kind of the next hurdle to get them to understand each other and so forth. I look forward to, many times I look forward to um, talking to to groups, more intimate groups and larger groups, but to groups to share with them, there's another way. Uh, But in the world that that we're in right now, it's taking a little bit to make it a little bit more, not necessarily make it a whole lot. Yes, Yes, there are a few that do that, but there's this young man, this young man named John Henry. Uh, he has a, I think it's uh John Henry style. There's this thing that he says that really struck me. And I guess it's a call, I follow him last couple of years or so. Very bright. Reminds me a lot of me back in the day, you know, straight hustler, you know, whatever level of sophistication still hustling. Uh, <laughs> but he says this thing about, it's about a transference of confidence. Yes. Uh, and in, in that, which you, you were talking about mitigation, you know, Risk, mm-hmm. mitigating risk, uh, the transference of confidence really becomes the linchpin on how to get people to talk. Yes. because it's it's. Uh, I've achieved a certain amount. You've achieved a certain amount. You've achieved a certain amount. How can we put it together to collaborate to get something bigger done? Mm. Uh, because this individual social media kind of makes us all individuals, but we still need to, we still need to collaborate. Yes, Yes. we can sit at the computer. You know, I used to, you know, when I started, it took an airbrusher to go do things and you know, you need a production person to do things and so forth. You can do all that now in an hour yourself in Mm -hmm. front of a computer. That doesn't change the fact that you don't need to talk to the other individuals. Yes. That do the certain parts that are necessary to do things, and particularly doing publishing. You know, it's a lot. It's writers and editors and producers and project managers and so forth. You know, to get one project done, uh, but we've kind of convinced ourselves we can do it all by ourselves, and it just is not the way that we're going to move forward. Doing it that way, you kind of stay at a certain level.
1: Of course, uh,
0: and the, particularly now, the the goal is to take, you know, that nickel and make it a dollar, you know, and that dollar to make a hundred, uh, and it, it takes other people to help do that. And You can't yeah. make everything, you know, I think. I talk to these young designers and they, they want to take every dollar and say, no, hire another designer. How about yes. that? Yes. You know, you're not yes. that good at that. Hire somebody else to do that part. You yes. make 60% versus a hundred percent, but you can do five projects at the same time. Mm-hmm. Why not do that? Yes. So yeah, know, it's another way to look at it.
1: And with that confidence comes trust and faith. Yes. And so much of these, so much of the work we do is relationship based and people yes. think that it's output driven. I make websites. The output is a website. I would argue that the output was the collaboration between you and the client. Yes. The website was just the artifact of that relationship.
0: Yes. So in that Let's relationship,
1: in that relationship, we need that trust and we need that confidence, Uh not just in terms of getting the job done, but just in terms of how we see business. And you can't have that connection without that confidence and without that faith and without that trust. So again, I think that's a really powerful distinction and we need to stop looking so uh, being so myopic about our work and how we want to work and, you know, just open ourselves up. You know, that's the only way we're going to move forward. Right.
0: That's good. That's good. Great way to say it.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you.
0: Um,
1: This this has been amazing today. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this session. I think there's so much in there for people to take away. Um, It's just been absolutely great. My thanks to Juan for joining me today. Um, My belief is that uh, his work and journey can show other creatives the power of serving a niche and how we can build value and empower communities by focusing on the smallest viable market. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with this space Um, for everybody for everybody listening and watching you can view Juan's work at creativelunacy.com. that's creative l-u-n-a-c-y or one word dot com or on instagram at juan roberts you can also find these links in the show notes or in the full episode page which you can find at bunbury.co forward slash podcast that's b-u-n-b-u-r-y dot c-o forward slash podcast Thanks for being with us today and be sure to join me again next week for more inspiring conversations. Thank you again, Juan.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Design for the People with Greg Bunbury.